0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to a special edition of Money Talks. I did, I did, not, I did, not. I did not.
2: I do not say that. And I think it's I do important that. that we, wrong. that is absolutely wrong. Again. wrong. We act fine, you
1: know. Well, it's been an election campaign very different to one that even veterans of the U.S. stump have seen before, filled with unexpected twists.
3: Russia, if you're listening... I hope you're able to find the
1: 30,000 emails that are missing. And some vitriolic terms. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Such a nasty one. As this disputatious one. contest enters its final fortnight, we've moved our Economist radio base from London to Washington to bring you five of our shows from the place the contenders are vying to run. So our shows will all be linked in some way to the election, featuring economist editors based in America, but also outside voices from prominent researchers, commentators, pollsters, and of course politicians. But we haven't forgotten our base across the Atlantic, so we'll also check in with some of our regular guests from London too. So let's get to it with Money Talks. We'll hear from our US business editor, Patrick Fowles, and Free Exchange columnist Ryan Avent about the Wall Street versus Main Street argument that underlies many of the election's tensions.
4: And again, the companies themselves would argue that if the investment climate improved and um, the political situation in the US seemed more stable, perhaps they'd turn on the taps a bit.
5: I think the idea that shareholder value is the only thing that matters, the be-all and end-all of corporate life, is is actually relatively recent. It's only in the last few decades that that's become the social norm.
1: While back in London, our Buttonwood columnist Philip Coggan dissects how the markets are responding to the prospect of a Trump win.
3: Among their tail risks for the markets, along with... The breakup of the EU was a Republican victory in the presidential election.
1: And finally, MIT professor David Autor on how the negative consequences of free trade
2: affect politics. A lot of the discussion of trade at present in in electoral politics is very reactive and backward looking.
1: First, though, on the campaign trail, a place people used to marvel at or make movies about has become something of a dirty word, Wall Street. Accusations about which candidate is more in the pocket of bankers and big business underscores a growing attitude that Wall Street's largess comes at the cost of the men and women on Main Street. The Economist polled its Twitter followers to find out what they think. 68% said that Wall Street's increased economic power has harmed Main Street America, with only 25% voting against that notion. So here it is, ladies and gentlemen, Wall Street versus Main Street, Economist style. We asked our US business editor, Patrick Fowles, and our free exchange columnist, Ryan Vent to weigh in. First, on the view from Wall Street, is Patrick
4: people are still very angry with Wall Street years after the crisis, uh, particularly since some of its big firms, most recently Wells Fargo, continue to be embroiled in misconduct. And people are also really angry against big companies, which they accuse of being agents of globalization, shifting jobs out of America to other countries and, and creating a monopolistic position. So Bernie Sanders has slammed General Electric, Donald Trump has piled into Ford and, and Hillary Clinton has attacked companies on many levels. So there's no question corporates are in the firing line.
5: I think it's deserved a little bit that they that they receive this kind of attention. And I don't think it's just about Wall Street being an agent of globalization. Uh, Wall Street has, has done a lot to earn the ire of, of people over the last decade. It's Culpable in in the you know the excesses that led to the financial crisis. Wall Street was appeared to be bailed out in a big way by Washington because it was seen as, as too big to fail, that it couldn't be allowed to collapse. Voters felt themselves to be bearing the tax burden for that bailout and also not to be receiving similar assistance. So I don't think it's surprising in the least that that Wall Street has faced this kind of criticism. You know, even though in some cases it's overdone, quite a lot of it is justified.
4: Wall Street's banks can argue legitimately that they have enacted an enormous uh, swathe of reforms that have really totally changed the way they operate and forced them to have much bigger safety buffers in their businesses before, such that I think many people think it's incredibly unlikely we would ever have a repeat of the crisis in 2007-8, or certainly not in the same way. And what both sets of, of companies, both Wall Street and the big industrial firms, can also argue is that the political system has failed them. So gridlock in D.C. has meant there's been no reform of America's broken corporate tax system, which I th- almost anyone sane agrees has become a serious liability for the country. Gridlock in, in Washington has meant no real progress on america's infrastructure problem you still fly into new york possibly the capital of the world and discover it has 3rd world airports Uh, and gridlock in in dc has also meant um, the growth of a lot of red tape and rules uh, has not been dealt with either so it is true that main street has uh, legitimate complaints uh, about wall street and big companies but um, those those corporations also have um, legitimate complaints about the way policy and and politics has worked in america
5: well there's no question that washington deserves uh, a lot of the blame for both what's gone wrong on wall street and what's gone gone wrong on main street i, I think the the big point to make is that policy doesn't happen in a vacuum that, you know, Wall Street isn't standing idly by while Washington makes policy in a lot of these areas. They're very involved. They employ thousands of lobbyists. They spend uh, billions of dollars on various campaigns. A lot of the people who serve in uh, capacity in Washington end up going to, to Wall Street to earn money later, or they go from Wall Street back to serve in a regulatory capacity, and therefore have you know, very very closely shared interests with Wall Street. So I, I think it's difficult to separate the policies in, in Washington in terms of financial regulation, uh, you know, lack of investment in infrastructure, in terms of tax reform that have made behavior worse or that have made life more difficult for workers and the influence of the big firms on Wall Street.
4: It's, it's not the duty of big business to create social outcomes. It's uh, the duty of big businesses to, to sort of maximize Value for their owners within the law, and if you look at corporate America's track record over the last 10 years, judged by that metric, it's been an outstanding success. So, of you know, the top 20 companies in the world, almost all are American now. So, judged by the metric which they run themselves by, corporate America has done very well. The issue and the complaint would be that those companies have not done enough to reinvest the big profits they make. And again, the companies themselves would argue that if the investment climate improved and um, the political situation in the U.S. seemed more stable, perhaps they'd turn on the taps a bit.
5: I think the idea that shareholder value is the only thing that matters, the be-all and end-all of corporate life is is actually relatively recent. It's only in the last few decades that that's become the social norm. And it used to be taken for granted, I think, that, that companies would play both a direct role in the communities in which they were based, but also participate in the development of their workers. I mean, if you think about Henry Ford, for example, if, if there's a better example of of an American capitalist, I'm not sure what it is. Henry Ford cared a great deal about the behavior of his employees, about their education, about their, their social skills, and worked very hard to improve uh, what he saw as as the, you know the quality of life and the, the sort of behavior of his workers. So. I don't. I don't think that's a, that's an unreasonable thing to expect corporations to do. And when you think about the big companies who are benefiting their shareholders by um, exploiting every possible loophole in, in corporate tax law, I don't think they have a duty to do that. In fact, I think that that's something that's harmful over the long run. That's going to undermine the legitimacy of American business, uh, and that people are right to be upset about. <laughs>
1: Our thanks to Patrick Fowles and Ryan Event battling it out there. But what do you think? Has Wall Street's pursuit of profit been bad for the average American worker, or just misunderstood? Let us know what you think on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can send us an email to radio at economist.com. Wall Street's ups and downs are legendary, but the impact of this election's possible effect on the markets might be remarkable. Earlier today, I spoke to our Buttonwood financial columnist, Philip Coggan. So, Phil, what signs are there that suggest Wall Street is worried about a Trump victory? Well, there are a couple of signs. First,
3: there is the reaction of the markets uh, when uh, you get major developments in the opinion polls. So, there's a study that the Brookings Institution has published which showed that the first debate, which has seen as this decisive moment in the campaign with Clinton moving further ahead, we saw a rally in equities pretty much around the world, and a decline in assets that appeal to risk-averse investors like treasury bonds and gold. So that shows that the markets are happier about a Clinton victory than they would be about a Trump victory. And, And secondly, I've just been in New York interviewing people on Wall Street, and it's remarkable that it's difficult to find anybody that's a Trump enthusiast. And Thirdly, a poll of institutional investors by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, found that among their tail risks for the markets, along with the breakup of the EU, was a Republican victory in the presidential election. And that's quite extraordinary in historical terms in that markets are traditionally assumed to favor the Republican Party.
1: I was just going to probe that a bit with you because markets seem to favour Republicans winning the White House and also Donald Trump, think of him what one will, has made money. He's known in the financial community in New York. He's been a buccaneering entrepreneur. So is this policy or is this a personality aversion?
3: It's a combination of the two, really. First of all, his uh, personality is such that markets are far from sure what he would actually do. He doesn't have the kind of policy team behind him that you would have associated with past presidential campaigns so that when Mitt Romney was campaigning in 2012, there were academics and think tank people you could talk to, or indeed Barack Obama back in 2008. There was a certain degree of reassurance from the kind of people they were surrounded by. It's not the case with Donald Trump. The second problem, of course, is on policy. So whilst who knows what he would actually do, he's muttered about breaking up NAFTA.
1: So do you think it really is the attack on globalisation rather than the other aspects of Trump that cause more concern among investors?
3: Well, I think there are are three things. So the other two things apart from uh, trade are the fact that he's... um, poured cold water on some of the US's historic alliances and NATO and uh, the defense links in Asia, for example. So there would be geopolitical risk that would come out of a a more isolationist US. And then, of course, there's the attitude towards the Federal Reserve. He said that Janet Yellen should be ashamed of the policy uh, she's been pursuing. Uh, That would suggest he would bring in either immediately, or when Janet Yellen's term expires in early 2018, a more hawkish um, Fed president. And that would lead, of course, to uh, tighter monetary policy. And that would be seen as bad for the markets.
1: And Here's another area of uncertainty. You've commented for us on the markets after Brexit. But there was an example where we saw an impact on the markets and then arise again. And it could be that the markets are rather better at factoring these things in. To play devil's advocate here, would the signals now necessarily be the way that the markets would respond the day after a Trump win?
3: I think they would respond significantly if Trump won, given the way they're positioned at the moment, in that, as the Brookings Institution studied show they do react to shifts in the polls. And now that Clinton is ahead in the polls... Uh, Trump victory would be seen as a surprise and thus would have a a market impact. But to go back to Brexit, of course, there has been a lasting impact of Brexit uh, on the markets, which is that sterling is about 15% weaker than it was before uh, the referendum decision.
1: But the stock market more robust.
3: The stock market in uh, sterling terms more robust, but in dollar terms, uh, no better off, worse off than before. And in dollar terms, the UK stock market is one of the worst performers uh, in the world this year. So, yes, uh, the uh, pound value of uh, the overseas earnings of the multinationals calculated in the FTSE has gone up. But uh, if you go back to the 1990s in, in Zimbabwe dollar terms, then Zimbabwean stock market was often the best performer. Uh, but in a common currency for, <laughs> format, it was one of the worst performers in the world.
1: A comforting thought. And how would a Clinton victory sit, do you think, with Investors, Are they excited about the prospect of all-out victory for the Democrats?
3: No, not at all. So their ideal would be a Clinton victory with a Republican House, which would pretty much mean that policy stayed um, the same as now. There might be a modest fiscal stimulus, that sort of thing. Hillary Clinton, who's often criticised for being very pragmatic, might be able to do a deal with Republicans the way that Obama couldn't. But they wouldn't want a Democratic sweet, because that would bring in the sort of Sanders, Elizabeth Warren program to the Democratic Party, which would probably mean higher taxes and uh, more regulation. Indeed, if you look at Hillary Clinton's uh, tax proposals, they're more traditionally democratic uh, in tone. uh, They have higher taxes on the wealthy, restrictions on capital gains tax. And the markets are hoping that they'll have a kind of not the shock of a Trump victory and not a full democratic program, but pretty much steady as she goes.
1: It's a Democrat victory, but not too much. Exactly. That was Philip Coggan talking about the impact of the elections on the markets. We heard from our earlier contributors about an antsy mood when it comes to Wall Street. Bound up with that angst against banks and big business, is anxiety about free trade. And it comes from both corners of the debate. A lot of economists have argued for years that open markets have ultimately benefited the American worker and consumer, but some take a different stance. And Henry Kerr, our US economics editor, spoke to MIT's David Autor, winner no less of MIT's Best Professor Award in the technology and policy category. And here they are.
0: So David... Your recent research has looked at the effect of growing trade with China on America's labour market. But before we get onto that, perhaps you could explain what economists have traditionally had to say about the effects of trade.
2: Sure. So economic theory clearly indicates that trade among consenting nations raises uh, GDP in in uh, in those nations, both whether you're importing, whether you're exporting or both. Uh, it's in general makes countries wealthier. It also suggests that uh, there will tend to be winners and losers. That is, uh, trade is redistributive. So it can grow the size of the pie uh, while actually causing some slices of the pie to shrink in real terms. So the theory is clear that trade both raises GDP and causes some redistribution, uh, not all of it which we would feel good about. But the evidence for a long time was that it raised GDP but it didn't seem to have much of a redistributive consequence uh, we there was not a lot of evidence that suggested that trade had been particularly disruptive for labor markets and I, I don't think that evidence was wrong uh, I think the trade integration that we had seen uh, over the last 30 in the post-war period uh, really was was not uh, not very rapid uh, a lot of it was trade among rich countries and so they were sort of you know we buy uh, wine and cheese from France and we sell them aircraft parts and it sort it's not direct competition about who can be the cheapest provider of tennis shoes or something. Uh, And so so economists, when giving policy advice, had tended to play up the, uh, this is good for the world, or good for each country, raises GDP view, and sort of tended to play down the possible uh, adverse redistributional consequences because the data didn't suggest they were very strongly present. So theory said that some
0: people would lose out, but the empirical evidence initially at least suggested that in actual fact people who uh, were displaced by trade could easily find other jobs or or move around within the labour market. That's correct. and how, how have your recent research findings about trade with China kind of contradicted that view?
2: Well, you know, many economists had noticed that China's rise as a, as a world manufacturing power had occurred very, very rapidly and had been pretty disruptive for countries that were competing in some of those labor intensive products in which China suddenly became very productive, very competitive, very cheap. And so people had noticed that this had had the effect of, you know, some import competing manufacturers were shrinking our work looked very broadly at the effect this had not just on those uh, industries but on the workers and on the local labor markets in which those uh, industries were housed and it's important to recognize the manufacturing unlike you know kind of restaurants and doctors offices and pharmacies manufacturing is very geographically concentrated you know most of the uh, you know textiles in the US are made in the Carolinas most of the commodity furniture is made in uh, Tennessee so when those firms and industries kind of go belly up, uh, it has big knock-on effects uh, in the surrounding community because, of course, the, you know, the, the trucking services that uh, serve those manufacturers also will shut down and the restaurants that serve their workers will also shut down. And what we showed was that China's rapid growth as an exporter due to its own internal developments had the effect of dislocating uh, a very large number of US manufacturing workers, especially starting after 2001 when China uh, joined the WTO. And those workers were not quickly reabsorbed into other activities. We saw their unemployment rate rise, big falls in labor force participation, meaning meaning they were neither working nor looking for a job, uh, growth in movements onto disability uh, and other public benefits programs. So
0: your your work has shown that uh, trade with China came with these concentrated costs. Both to the uh, the displaced workers themselves, who weren't as able to find other jobs as people had previously thought, and to the local economies, which depended on their spending. But trade still comes with enormous benefits, such as cheaper goods and higher productivity, and and that's not in dispute.
2: No, and and I should also, it's really important to emphasise that uh, it's been enormously good for the world, right? That China's rise has just grown the size of the world middle class uh, extremely rapidly. Not only has it brought 400 million Chinese out of poverty, but it's created prosperity uh, through the commodity boom in Central and South America. It's, it's spurred investment in Africa. So the consequences for the US, for a significant subset of workers, are very severe. And one can't say that that doesn't matter. But on any world welfare scale, you'd have to say, gee, this was a, just an enormously beneficial thing for humanity.
0: So the final question I wanted to ask you is, there's been a a great political swing against uh, free trade over the period that you studied. In uh, 1993, for instance, there was the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, which was signed by Bill Clinton, a Democratic president, and which got a lot of Republican votes in Congress. And I guess... What I wanted to ask was how much do you think of today's political polarization and also swing against free trade has been caused by the negative consequences of trade, which you've found in your
2: work? So uh, a number of points on that. Uh, One, a lot of the discussion of trade at present in the electoral politics is very reactive and backward looking in the sense that uh, China's huge surge has largely ended. Uh, China is now you know, much closer to steady state. It's not gonna, the next 15 years, 20 years are not gonna look like the last 15 or 20 years. So China will continue to be an incredibly important manufacturing country, but it's not gonna be disrupting in the same way because it, it's you know, largely hit its stride. But I do think, yes, this has contributed uh, to political polarization and work that I've done with uh, David Dorn of the University of Zurich, Gordon Hansen of U- UC San Diego and Kaveh Machlesi of Lund University. We show that voting districts that were particularly impacted by the China trade shock tended to exhibit political polarization at the polls. In other words, uh, 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 elimination, removal of moderate uh, elected officials being replaced by people who are more ideologically extreme. Generally, that was more right-wing ideologically extreme conservative Republicans, uh, Tea Party, and Freedom Caucus candidates in Districts that were initially heavily minority and democratic, we actually saw uh, removal of moderates and uh, in- installation of more extremely liberal candidates of the sort of Bernie Sanders uh, stripe. So we do see, just looking at the uh, House of Representatives between 2000 and 2010, we see a big harbinger of what was to come in the 2016 uh, presidential election. I don't think we we were not aware of it until recently, but in fact, it was already manifesting itself as the polarization of the House of Representatives, splitting partly along trade lines uh, and in the same way that we see that uh, in the current presidential election. Now, one point to emphasize about that is although trade causes the schism, to some degree, it's not, the schism is not mostly about trade policy. When you elect a conservative Republican, uh, you get a package of policies about global warming, about taxation, about abortion, about immigration. When you ele- uh, elect a liberal Democrat, you get another package about those same topics but with different valence. Most of it is not about trade policy per se. It affects the entire ideological complexion of the uh, elected body. Very interesting. David Autor, thank you. Thanks very much.
1: That's all from our DC-based Money Talks this week. Do follow our week of shows from Washington on The Economist radio feed on iTunes or your ACAST app. And for extended American election coverage from our expert team, do pick up the upcoming issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. In Washington, this is The Economist.